the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. If you want to be the entrepreneur and you want other people to do the work, you're going to have to sacrifice some immediate profit in order to get people in and train them up and create a foundation. If you want to be an owner-operator where you are doing some of the legal work and some of the legal work is done through others, then you start looking at what you can get off your plate to give you enough time to actually create structure. And that really is a matter of managing your time and managing your schedule. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? You've got some allergy issues. How you feeling? Uh, St. Louis allergy weather is for the birds. I'm moving to San Diego, dude. This is the worst. I, I've had this is the worst allergies I've had, and I sound congested and I feel punky. You know, it's funny. You said you had allergies. I don't think you sound too bad. I can tell a slight difference, but you, you don't sound too bad. But you know, anything we can do to get you out of Missouri, I'm all for. We get you out to San Diego. You're hanging out with Josh Goldstein, and and I'm I'm, I'm all for it. Get you as, as far away from this place as possible. Sound good? I see how you are. I'm just teasing. I, I would be very sad. I know you're going to move at some point, but uh, uh, it's not rushing. So do you want to inter, uh, introduce our guest of the week? Well, I am really excited about our guest today. She was introduced to us by our good friend, Seth Price. She's a New Jersey uh, family law attorney who also works with other lawyers on helping them grow their firms. Uh, her name is Allison Williams. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you. Well, so we're, we are really excited to talk to you, too. Uh, any friend of Seth is a friend of ours, and he, he says really good things about you. So talk a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today. So as you noted in my intro, I'm a New Jersey family law attorney. I've um, been a family law attorney for 16 years my entire career, and I started my law firm in 2013. And I came out a lot unlike a lot of solos. I did not have to hustle to find clients. I already had a pretty substantial book of business going out. But what I found that was crazy was trying to manage setting up a law firm, running a law firm, and practicing law all at the same time. And it was a real struggle. And so I, I ended up working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And at some point, I had hired my third or fourth incompetent staff person and finally said, all right, I'll just be a secretary in addition to a lawyer. So I'm 
I've got an hour commute back and forth to home. And one day I suddenly had a clear calendar for the next uh, Friday. So I said, well, let me just use that day to catch up and I'll be in the office. And that Thursday night, I ended up uh, kind of relieved that I was finally going to get a day in the office. I left early at seven o'clock at night, very, very early for me at that time. Got in the car, driving 90 miles an hour, so excited to get home and get a full night of sleep that I fell asleep and almost hit a guardrail. And very quickly realized that I did not want to own a law firm anymore. <laughs> so I threw myself into the marketplace, got a very lucrative offer from a very large law firm. And on my way to go accept that offer, I turned it down. Didn't really know why. I said it's miserable to own a law firm. I don't know why I'm going to be a glutton for punishment. But if I'm going to own this firm and if it's not going to kill me, I got to find somebody to help me. So I started working with different business coaches over a relatively short period of time, grew my revenues 856% in four years, now own a multi-million dollar corporation that really runs itself, and I am the steering uh, agent over the ship, but I recognize the freedom that comes with owning a business instead of running a practice, and I very much advocate that that is the way that lawyers ought to situate themselves so that they can create the wealth that they want, the lifestyle that they want, and that they can actually enjoy owning a business, whether they're choosing to practice law or just choosing to be an entrepreneur. So now I'm a business coach. Last year, I decided to launch Law Firm Mentor, which is a business coaching service dedicated to helping lawyers grow revenue, crush chaos in business, and make more money. And those are the three things that I help them do through teaching them in business retreats and one-to-one -one coaching, the strategies of sales, marketing, people, and prospects. So that's me in a nutshell. That's Law Firm Mentor in a nutshell. And uh, that's kind of where I am. Well, let's try to unpack some of this because it sure sounds really good. The first thing I want to know about is how you said that you started your practice with a book of business. How did that sort of come about? So as I noted before, my practice area is family law. And um, I have a unique niche within family law. And I'm always a big proponent of people creating niches. But I help people who are involved in the child welfare system. So CPS is what most people will think of as that, as that category. I help parents accused of child abuse, relatives who want parents, um, children out of the foster care system, people who believe their children have been abused and the system did not get those investigations right. And I developed a practice doing that in the private sector, which is very odd and unique in our state and in most states across the country. 98% of cases brought by the state of New Jersey accusing someone of child abuse are income eligible for the public defender's office. So I cornered the market on that remaining 2% and then decided that I wanted to extrapolate that into a broader practice. So now any person who has a child abuse concern or issue in any family law matter, whether it's divorce, custody, et cetera, they know me as uh, the person to help them with that. And that was how I was able to really generate a practice doing kind of grassroots blogging back before blogging was a thing. You know, I set up my own little free WordPress blog and just kind of put stuff out there so that as lawyers would call me and ask for help, I didn't always have time to help them because at that point I was the only attorney servicing 16 counties across the state of New Jersey. So I was always running. So I said, let me just put my library of materials and articles and stuff online and people can find it. And then clients started finding it. Next thing you know, I had a full statewide practice uh, that was generating a few hundred thousand dollars. So, Allison, you, I mean, you, I don't know, what, 2013 or whenever it was, you were sort of doing the same grind that a lot of attorneys that are listening to this were doing, you know, kind of, you know, working all day, you know, just praying for that day off and just kind of really struggling. 
what, what would you say is the differentiator between, you know, being that attorney and then really stepping up your game to be where you are today? Well, I would say probably the, the biggest shift was moving from the idea that I had to do everything and the idea that I was going to lose my reputation if I didn't let other people do my work. You know, once you kind of figure out how to practice law and it's no longer a taxing thing to practice law, we are, for the most part, very egotistical as a profession. And in particular, litigators, you know, you get your reputation by being able to stand up and assert your position and defend yourself and um, have somebody else attack you and ultimately prevail over that. So it was very important to me. I had built a big reputation and I wanted to maintain it. And I thought, okay, I hire somebody, they screw up, then my reputation goes down the toilet. And I had to very quickly realize that judges are not going to see and other attorneys are not going to see you as nothing more than the extension of the people you work with. You have your own reputation. So if I hired somebody and gave them the tools necessary and really invested in them to be able to get my work done as best as possible and not have to be as perfect as I might otherwise like it, I could free myself to be able to do other things. And that became necessary because I had more work than I could withstand as an associate. I certainly didn't have the time owning a business to go out and you know, be returning all the emails and the phone calls and the letters. I needed people to help me with that. So stepping into that and getting really solid help sooner rather than later is really what helped me to scale. Allison, talk to us about getting that support. How do you, what's your mindset when you're hiring? When do you know when to hire? And what do you look for when you're hiring? So the when to hire question is an interesting one. And the, the question that, whenever lawyers ask me that question, I always say you have to look at what your business model goals are. So if you want to be the entrepreneur and you want other people to do the work, you're going to have to sacrifice some immediate profit in order to get people in and train them up and create a foundation. If you want to be an owner-operator where you are doing some of the legal work and some of the legal work is done through others, then you start looking at what you can get off your plate to give you enough time to actually create structure. And that really is a matter of managing your time and managing your schedule. So looking at your five-day calendar, or if you're going to work more days than that, I don't advise it, but if you're going to, however many days of the week you're going to be working, chunk out time for working on the business versus working in the business. And that time working on the business has to be sacrosanct. And if it does not fit all the work that you have into the remaining time, you have to hire somebody. Whether you think you can afford it or not, if you hire somebody and you can optimize their work and build them out, so in other words, hiring a paralegal versus a secretary to start, that will give you enough to be able to afford them. But if you don't make that step, you're not going to move. Then once you've decided that you're going to hire and you've decided who you're going to hire, I am a big proponent of using assessments in getting the right people in the door. So one of the great tools that I use in my business, and I always recommend it to my clients, is a product called the Real Talent Hiring Assessment by a guy named Jay Henderson. And you can find that at realtalenthiring.com. That assessment tool gives you nine pages of data about how your potential candidate thinks, works, organizes, delegates, manages responsibility, and deals with authority. And all of those aspects of who a person is when they show up at work is going to tell you whether they're going to be somebody that's better at taking the tasks and running with them or managing the tasks and assigning them or handling their attitude in terms of dealing with you and other lawyers. All of this information that we often gloss over because we're so desperate to get a body in will help us to create the culture that we want. And if you're not concerned about that when you're hiring somebody and you just want somebody to push paper, you're going to spend a lot more of your time, energy, and mental anguish 
chasing mistakes that people make because of who they are intuitively that you could have avoided if you had just looked before before you hired. So, Allison, early on you mentioned that you'd gone through a few different staff members. What do you think the mistakes were that you made then that you don't make now? Oh, God, there's so many of them. Where do we start? Um, I, I have been, I probably made more mistakes in hiring than the aggregate of all of your listeners combined. Uh, I will tell you, some of the mistakes that I made were, uh, you know, I did not interview well. So I would typically assume that if I asked somebody a question that they were giving me a reasonably honest answer, unless their answer appeared to be fraudulent. You know, if you ask somebody, you know, what is your greatest strength or what is your greatest weakness, you take them at face value when they say their greatest strength is writing if you get a good writing sample. Or if the person says their greatest weakness is um, that they are a little too overly involved with their clients, you take that as, okay, this is an overly dedicated person, I can rein that in. But I started to learn um, through a lot of different resources how to get better at interviewing. So one of the great resources is a book called The Who by Jeffrey Smart. And, you know, it's, it's, it was great about teaching me about behavioral interviews, where every time somebody says something, you ask them for concrete examples and you really probe what they're saying, not just what do you think is your best strength, but give me an example of how that had a positive impact and give me an example of when it didn't have uh, that but for your talent, uh, the, the situation got a lot worse because you didn't have the ability to bear upon that problem. People really have to start thinking through it, and you can really start to assess what, what's going on. But I didn't do that to start. You know, I just kind of met with people, got a sense if I liked them. And I also made the mistake of hiring people that were a lot like me. So I know what my strengths are, and I know what made me successful, so I figured if I want somebody who's going to be successful, I will find someone who's successful like me. The problem is that I didn't need more of me because I was pretty damn good at being me. I needed people who were doing all the stuff that I was not good at. And I didn't look for that hard enough. And so um, I started to assemble people that were great in court and great on their feet, but not so great with details. Or they were great with details, but didn't spend enough time with the clients. Or they spent time with the clients, but they weren't really that concerned about uh, making sure that their hours were met. And I didn't have any of these intuitive problems, but because I was looking for people that had the same um, goals as I did, they were kind of hungry, if you will. They were chasing their own objectives, and they didn't align with what I needed for the business. Allison, that's great. I think definitely hiring people that have different skill sets than ourselves is really important. One of the things, I work with my wife, and we are very much opposite on many things. We've all taken the Colby test here at our office and she and I are the opposites and we find that the people that uh, I work with are better if they're more like my wife and the people that she works with are better if they're more like me. So that sort of corroborates what you're saying. So my question for you next is uh, about niching down. I mean, in that opening statement of yours, you, you said so many themes that we hit on in our podcast, but one of the most important ones we talk about is niching down and you even talked about niching down within a niche. Talk to our listeners a little bit about why that's so important. So, you know, one of the things that I help lawyers with is marketing. And your marketing message is going to resonate with certain people. But if you don't have a very specific target market, you're not speaking to an individual who has the problem that you need to solve and that you have the ability to solve, then your message is going to fall flat. So that doesn't mean that you can't get clients, right? A lot of people say, well, I'll practice door law. Anyone that walks through the door that has a check, I'll do that work and I'll get experience. But the problem becomes that if you're not 
spending your time immersed in the world that you're going to be serving, that you don't really have that lingo, you don't have that reputation, you don't have that energy, and people pick up on that. Like they may not be able to verbalize it, but they know somebody who's a jack of all trades versus somebody who's a real specialist. So the more that you're able to communicate to the marketplace in everything that you write, everything that you say, everything that you posit on your website versus your blog versus your consultations even, is going to have a message that has a theme to it. And the more themed your communication, the more a person is going to intuitively understand that you are the right person to help them. So it makes it easier to sell your legal services. It makes it easier to attract the right types of clients in your marketing. It makes it easier to hire the right kind of people because if you're assembling people who want to have a lot of variety doing 5,000 different things because they have shiny object syndrome, that's a very different hire than somebody who really wants to be meticulous at what they do. So it just it makes life easier all around, but it certainly makes it easier from a scaling perspective because I chose a niche, um, or I like to say my niche chose me, but um, I ended up in a practice area that nobody was doing and there really wasn't a market for it. So I had to go out and create my market, and then I had to make myself the master of my market. And by doing that at the time, I guess I, I'd be what you refer to as an unconscious confident. I didn't really set out knowing that that was what I was doing. Um, I just stepped in the direction of what I was passionate about. But by virtue of doing that, people saw that I was passionate about the work and the work just kind of came to me. So I didn't have to really spend a whole lot of time and money going out trying to convince people that I knew what I was doing because I was the one who was doing it and putting it out there front and center. All right, Allison. So let's assume that we've got an attorney just starting out, whether they're just at a law school or they've worked for a couple of years at another firm. They've got a very minimal marketing budget. Um, they're not like you, and they don't have a bunch of clients to take with them. Where do you think they should start to start to build that book of business? So building a book of business for young attorneys or even newer attorneys who um, independently having to find work is really, in my view, a product of relationships. And it's interesting that I say that because I'm not somebody who intuitively enjoys networking. I'm not somebody who would go out and, and enjoy the bar association events. I went to them, but I didn't really enjoy that as my, my practice area. But once you kind of decide what you want to do, it really is about finding the people that are going to give you the work. And you can find that through, as soon as you have one client, you have the snowball effect. So you serve that one client, you serve that client well, and then be very intentional about asking your clients for more clients. It amazes me the number of lawyers that feel skittish about asking their clients for either more work, calling up a client and saying, hi, client, we haven't checked each other out in a while. Um, I just wanted to know how things were going. We resolved your matter back in you know, two years ago. How have things been since then? Oftentimes, your clients can be the greatest source of new referrals. So you serve that one client and you ask them directly, look, I'm trying to grow my business. I really enjoyed helping you, and I love the work that I did with you. I'd like to be able to do that with more people. Do you know of anyone who has the problem that you need to solve? That is a very direct and very easy way of getting in free clients. Once you've done that with your clients, then think about that with every professional that you've encountered. Every adversary who has a case that is a smaller case than they would ultimately choose to take because it, you know, it just isn't what they want to do anymore, or every mediator or financial professional or expert that you deal with, ask them directly, hi, my name is and I want to grow my business. Do you have any people that you've encountered that need help in the area of whatever? When you're younger, 
and newer to the practice, you'd be surprised how much that hungriness factor is a differentiator. Because people that have been doing it for 15 or 20 years oftentimes feel like they know what they're doing versus that new person who's going to come in, infuse new blood and new energy and get you all excited and hyped up and make sure that they give your case the attention that it requires. So that's another good way of getting out there. And now the internet provides us ample opportunities, even free of charge, to be able to expand our reach. So I always tell people, anytime that you have an opportunity to get on a stage, that is going to give you the greatest magnifying effect of your message. So put yourself on a stage where, whether it's teaching a CLE or mentoring other attorneys in the practice, or even if you have just an opportunity to do like a community organization type of a, a group, get yourself onto someone's stage and get somebody to record it for you. And it can be an iPhone or Android camera phone, just capturing snippets of what you have to say. Then you have something that gives you authority because you're speaking to people and you're educating. When you are in the role of an educator, you're inherently given a, a certain level of higher status. And that's then going to be able to be marketed. So you can put that on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. You can make blog posts out of what you had to say. You can get them transcribed if you want to spend the money for it, or if not, you can just sit down and do it yourself and write out what you said. But you can put that in multiple places, and that one speech can get you 10, 20, 30 different touch points into the marketplace without you having to reproduce content. So you save yourself time and you magnify the marketing reach without the additional expense. Allison, what technology or, or software do you recommend people use when they're trying to keep track of their leads and then for, for client management as well? Yeah, so CRMs are a, a, a kind of a, a standard part of practice now. I mean, a lot of different um, software packages are including those for lawyers. And for anyone that's not familiar with that term, CRM stands for Customer Relationship Management Software. Um, so there's a lot of good ones on the marketplace um, that you can get relatively inexpensive. If it's not built into your practice management software, which is going to be your universe where you have all of your data, your contacts, and information for your practice, you can buy a CRM separate and apart from your CR, from your uh, practice management software, such as MailChimp. Um, that's the one that I like to use because it's list-based as opposed to um, email-based or database. Uh, there's also Constant Contact, which is another automated form of communication. There are some more sophisticated ones on the marketplace. I find Infusionsoft is a little clunky and hard to use uh, for me personally, but there are some certified professionals out there that will help you with something as sophisticated as Infusionsoft. And then there are um, software packages that are contained that are also designed to help you keep track of the people that come into your funnel through your marketing. So Lexicata, which has now been acquired by Clio, is a package where uh, not only would you have the ability to automate your email communications with people, but once they get onto your list, if they become a potential client, you can automate the communications that will go out to them about their case once they've signed up, getting retainers in, getting documents in, and so forth. So these, these solutions that are out there now are just wonderful to help save you time and also keep you top of mind awareness in front of the people that you're going to be working with. You know, it's really kind of funny, Jim. Like a couple of years ago, we were talking about automation and we got a little bit of pushback from people, you know, talking about automation and takes out the personal touch. I think it's really interesting how many of these case management systems have, have added on a CRM type of functionality. How many of these CRMs are really coming out of the woodwork? So it, it's kind of cool how the, the, the practice has evolved just over the last two to three years. Kind of crazy. Uh, so, Allison, I, I, I want to step back just for a second. You're, you're, you're talking about 
you're talking about scaling and adding people to your firm and um, kind of having people do things that you don't, you're not good at. I guess, how do they know? I mean, what, what do you use to train your employees when they come on board? How do you onboard them so that they know what they're doing and, and, know, and do it the right way, do it the way that you want them to do it? So training and onboarding is a really, really um, necessary, valuable part of the practice that isn't the sexy stuff of business. That's not the stuff that lawyers get all jazzed up about, but it definitely makes a huge difference in the quality of your team. Um, so we have a, we have several different um, components that cover that. So the first thing is that I am a very big proponent of having systems in every aspect of business. There should be nothing that you're doing in your business that you do at least once and more than once that you are not going to have into a written system that somebody else can follow if you're not there. So um, I actually, um, in my annual program, which I'll talk to you about a little bit later, I have a, a retreat that we have called Systematize Your Law Business that is all about how to create systems that are easy to follow, that people can understand intuitively and be able to execute. That's number one. Everything has to be in a system. And then once people come in, I think you really need to plan out a training and intake um, process for your new hires. So that means you need to have a designated person who's going to be responsible for training them on every critical function in their job. And in my office, we do that by virtue of um, both electronic options as well as people-based options. So uh, new hires come in. We have a 247-slide um, PowerPoint presentation that they watch on their first day that walks them through, you know, how to do everything in the business from using the copy machine to um, sending faxes. And even though faxes are not really vogue and we don't do it that much, they need to know how to do it. Who does what in the office? How to order supplies if you need a requisition for something, if you're going to a CLE. All of that is laid out for them so that they can first get a touch point of it and then later have it to refer back to in a manual. And then you have a person that will sit with you and go through technology. Because even though we are very technologically advanced now relative to where we were in the practice even five or ten years ago, there are a lot of different technology solutions out there. So the likelihood that you're going to hire somebody who uses exactly your kind of solution in exactly the same way is not that great. You really do need to take time with people to teach them the keystrokes, tell them where the manuals are, and get them fluid in using technology sooner rather than later so that there's not a thought gap in your business when they get there. And then finally, you need to have a process where you're checking in with people. You shouldn't just bring them in and figure out, I'll spend a couple of hours with them and then check in with them after a month or so. It really does need to be constant, repeated activity over a 30-day period, very intensive, and then thereafter, you're following up with them on a regular schedule because they need to absorb the information and have the occasion to put it down and come back to it. And if you don't give them that opportunity in a free space where they know that they're still in learn mode, you're going to cause a lot of anxiety. And that's the reason why typically you're going to find anywhere from three to six months it's going to take a high-achieving employee to acclimate to your new workplace. The average person in the middle of that bell curve, it's going to take six to nine months, and people that are a little bit less um, advanced are going to take as, as long as a year. So you really need to put a lot of time and training energy into your onboarding process for new people. All right, Allison. So um, we're about ready to wrap up the episode. I was wondering what, where can people find you and, and where do you see yourself going in the future? Law Firm Mentor is my, is my business coaching service for lawyers and we are growing very rapidly. So um, my, my website, interestingly enough, launches tomorrow. 
on May 1st of this year. Um, yes, I have already built a multiple six-figure business without having a website. I know that people don't think it's possible, but it is. Um, but I decided it's time to have a place online. So we're going to be at lawfirmmentor.net. No spaces, no dashes, just lawfirmmentor.net. And on our website, we will have a lot of information, including uh, the upcoming events that we have going on, um, different ways that you can with us in social media, including that we have a free Facebook group that we use to give a lot of information uh, to the marketplace about running a solo and small law firm. So if you are a lawyer and you're in any way online, if you're not online, you need to get there. If you are online, please join us at the Law Firm Mentor Movement. Uh, and in that Facebook group, we have interviews with experts. We give away free resources. Uh, from time to time, I will do Facebook Live uh, on different topics. We do have a series that runs every two weeks where we educate people about different topics like billing and software and things like that. So please join us at the Law Firm Mentor Movement and find us online at www.lawfirmmentor.net. Excellent. All right. So we're going to wrap things up. Before I do, I want, to, I want to remind everyone to go to our Facebook group. A lot of activity going on every single day. A lot of people sharing the six uh, tricks and tips and, and all their knowledge. So, so get on the Facebook group there. And then also, if you don't mind, give us a five-star review on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. Jimmy, what's your tip or heck of the week? So uh, there's a podcast that I listen to called The Art of Procrastination. It's with my man, Dean Jackson and Dan Sullivan. And I don't love the podcast. I enjoy it. And I listen to it from time to time. But they were talking about the other day of seeing when you procrastinate, of, of sort of stepping back and paying attention to the things that sit on your desk for a really long time. And then to ask yourself, not when am I going to find the time to get these things done, but rather who can I get to get these things done? And I just think that as a mindset of stepping back and using the the act of procrastinating as a bellwether to figure out what's bothering us or what we don't want to do, I found that to be really helpful. You know, Jimmy, that's really good advice. So I was, I, I gave this example a few weeks ago to someone because I, about delegation, and I was trying to teach uh, our operations manager, Candace, about delegation. And I had a sticky note sitting on my desk that we call it justice for three freaking weeks. And I kept looking at it and I kept putting it off. And then one day I just handed it to Sam and said, hey, will you call this adjuster? Uh, and she did it and it was done. And so, like, I don't know why I didn't for three weeks either call or give someone, but it's so much easier. I mean, that's what they're there for. That's what people are there for that you pay them to do is to do the work. So it's such a good a good thing because I know we all, I know everyone listening to this right now, or most of us, they, they've got something sitting on their desk and been sitting there. They haven't been doing anything with it. So. I like that, Jimmy. It's good. Uh, all right. So my tip of the week is, is actually um, one from the Haskin brothers, Haskins brothers. So they noticed that Google last week had added some general business category to some of the Google My Business account. And it, what it will do is that it will lower your rankings. And I'm not sure they gave the rationale as to why Google did that, but it wasn't like it was a penalty or something, but they just added a general business category to hundreds of, of Google My Business pages. I actually checked one of mine. One of mine had it on there, so I immediately removed it. And so check your Google My Business page and see if Google has slapped that general business category. I can't remember the exact name of it. You'll recognize it when you see it. So go into your Google My Business, check that, and remove it if they did, because otherwise it's going to affect your rank. So that is my tip of the week. 
Allison, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you all. Have a good week. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.